Welcome to another edition of the Grizz Den Podcast. We were going to say this is episode six, but we're not going to do episode numbers anymore uh, because, you know, this is a this is not a podcast that is uh, like serial or anything where you have to listen to the previous ones to uh, to be called up. You can you can jump in any time. Uh, we're we're happy for you to join us uh, now or in the future. It's kind of like Any the t- office, right? It's exactly right. Yeah. You, th- there's you you could see the thread, maybe you can hear the thread from from beginning to end, but it's not very it's not very important. You can just jump in anytime. No structure. I'm gonna uh, welcome my co-host. We're just, we're just here. Brantley Davidson's here. Let's go. Ty Smith is here. Hey. Uh, we just had a great interview uh, with. Actually, my father-in-law, David Boyd, you'll uh, be hearing more from him. It's a cool job. Yeah. I probably wouldn't want to have it because it sounds difficult. Yes. He has a very interesting job uh, for the Grizzlies, and he's going to tell us more about that later. Um, So, yeah, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at GrizzDen. Follow us on Instagram at Grizz underscore Den. Our podcasts are everywhere. Um, just search Memphis Grizzlies if you uh, if you're not sure what to type in, and we'll come up on uh, one of the first two pages. So thanks for joining us, uh, guys. Marcus Morris has been canceled officially. He's the absolute worst. Big old yikes. Good. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna talk more about uh, that tussle that happened yesterday. I but w- we just had some breaking news come through from uh, Sham Sharania. Do you have that tweet pulled up? Ty. Um, so he, uh, the all-star reserves were announced, um, or the Knicks, the Knicks news, the, the the Knicks news. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, we also have, we have two pieces of breaking news. Yeah. We're going to start with the, this this is it. Breaking, uh, suspensions. Yeah. So Jaron and Guterich, Marco, um, both suspended for Friday's game against New Orleans, which is really unfortunate because that game could be like, yeah. I think I said this when we played them the first time for MLK Day, that it's like the the future 2023 Western Conference Finals matchup. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people are looking forward to that, mainly Ja versus Zion. But it's going to hurt because I was kind of interested in seeing Jaron guarding Zion potentially. Yeah. Um, so, that yeah, that's unfortunate. And Alfred Payton also got suspended a game. I don't know how it wasn't more than that. Um, and then Jay got fined, and the worst person on planet Earth also got fined. Yeah, let's. You know what? Let's just skip everything. Let's go straight to this game. Let's talk about it. I've never disliked anything more in my life than just all of the Knicks. They're that, the worst. They seem so entitled. Which um, De- Dennis Smith Jr. was walking around the court like he was CP3 all of a sudden. Um, trying to like get all these calls, shoved Guterich once on the sideline, reminiscent of Robert Ory shoving Steve Nash, <laughs> except I would say this was even worse. <laughs> Guterich is my boy, yeah. Guterich, was... protect him, man. Yeah. Different country. He's already wondering what's going on most of the time, probably. Um, so the Grizzlies... just terrible. The Grizzlies um, were up most of the game. They went on a run in the third quarter. Um, then the game sort of slowed down. A lot of stops and starts, a lot of a lot of calls. And then the Knicks just started making some really weird yes. shots and sort of got it back into terrible. it. It's yeah. like watching the game, you're like, how, are, how do they have 12 points? And they had like 32 at the end of the first quarter. Their offense is just whoever gets the rebound 
Yeah. I think I slack this dribble dribbles like maybe five to ten times, and then try some pull up jumper. Yeah. So if you missed what we are have been referencing for the past three minutes, uh, we were up. We had kind of sealed the game. Jay Crowder still playing hard as he does. Um, we make a basket. He is kind of lingering still when they're throwing the inbounds past the Knicks, and he uh, steals the inbounds pass, uh, dribbles behind the three point line. The unwritten rule in the NBA is if you're up with less than a minute or so, you probably shouldn't take that three. But at the at the end of the day, he's a competitor, and uh, he 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 shot the put up the shot, and then Alfred Payton comes in and just basically form tackles him into yeah. the uh, into the court courtside seats and Jay gets up retaliates and then that was a bench clearing uh almost brawl you could say were it not for Taylor Jenkins and Jonas Valanciunas just restoring order um but yeah I I was most impressed uh and I said this earlier with Ja Morant by his composure by getting shoved by the aforementioned Marcus Morris but just doing nothing about it even kind of laughing at the situation, I thought that that was yeah. pretty impressive. And, like, Ja was really just trying to start stuff for sure. Kidding. He was just standing there. Right, yeah, he was doing nothing. And Marcus Morris was like, oh, let me find the smallest guy I can. Oh, Ja will do. And then just gives him a shove, and Ja's not even looking. And then Jonas goes over there, and then all of a sudden everything just kind of stops, of I course. thought you were going to say you were most impressed with Ja because he had a plus-minus of plus 42. That also happened. Let's talk about that. I, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It was nuts. Unbelievable. Um, and you just you could tell too, which is the funny part. Like sometimes you would see Brandon Clark leave a game and have like a plus twenty five on like sixteen minutes, and you're like, I don't really see that. Last night, like you, it was very obvious that Jaw just basically dominated the game. Glad that um, that was selected as a big game um, in our ongoing analysis of the season for Jaw, because even though um, his points was right at a season average, he had ten assists, so that'll bump up um, him there. And uh, for any plus minus um, analysis that I want to do in the future to prove my theory, uh, this is definitely going to help it um, <laughs> on an analytics basis. Yeah, it's it, gonna help. I um, we should mention the Grizzlies are now firmly in the eighth eighth spot, uh, up two and a half games on San Antonio. And since we last spoke, where we had endured two of the worst losses of the yes. season in in a row, we have we're four and zero. This team bounced back. Uh, we were a little worried about the rookie wall. Uh, yeah. yeah. Doesn't look like it's been All hit. fingers pointing at me over here. <laughs> Rightfully okay. so. I definitely – I didn't say it was going to happen. I just said it was something to watch for. Um, and I was I was terribly wrong. But it's good content, you know? I mean, you got to like it's all about. things to think about. It's all about. We're just here for your good Grizz content needs. And, you know, here's the thing is that <laughs> as you sort of look back and look at these four games – I think one of the fun things is that, sure, we beat the Knicks, and duh, they suck. So we're going to beat the Knicks. But we also beat a team like Denver. Wire to wire. wire you know, In a slow-paced game. Close, Our post slow pace was 93, game. which is – We held them to under 100 Detroit points. Detroit is decent. Now they didn't have yeah. Blake, so whatever. But at the same time, they're not playing terribly in the Eastern Conference. Um, and who's the, who's the fourth team? I'm Suns, thinking. Phoenix. The, the Suns. Suns. Yeah. Budding rivalry, Phoenix Suns, uh, not bright. Future. Also, I hate. Yeah. I hate a lot of teams. Yeah, right they're now. like the new Clippers. So yeah, they're get they are. They, they're they bug miserable. the crap out of me. So it's just <clears throat> in terms of like a week. If you're looking back at when we last hung out with everybody, it's big time. That's fun. It's been a big week. Yeah, and if you, so 
the whole thing about Ja potentially hitting the rookie wall didn't happen. But we also talked last time after the New Orleans game about how we tried to like play a different style, right? When we saw Jaron had the mismatch down low, so we fed him like four or five times in a row. And it didn't really work out, but I think we all agreed to be a really complete solid team. We need to learn how to win different ways. And then, hey, look out, what did we do at Denver? We slowed the pace down. We held them to less than 100 points. We played really good defense. Valachunas was awesome on on Jokic. That was huge. Um, and we just won a different way, which, again, this team, I just can't I, – I can't get over it. It's, it's nuts. And maybe the last thing you would say about this New York game, since we're a little out of maybe cadence. Hate all of them. Um, yeah, is – Brandon Clark's big game, you know, he was, you know, plus three for the night, had 17 points. Um, I think this was close, not to a season high, but if not his season high, it's his second or third um, big night. Um, had five total rebounds and assists, uh, three steals and a block, and was uh, played big minutes because uh, JJJ or Triple J, depending on the way that you like to talk about him was in foul trouble and really couldn't get consistent. Zero points in the first half. Zero points yeah, first half. Struggled. Came out of the second half, and they ran like three or four plays for him, and he sort of um, cranked it up, I think did really well. With Love a, that, you know, too. Kind of a couple go-to moments for him, hitting a three and some block action. But I think that's one of the things that makes sort of the whole next-gen um, you know, marketing component fun is that when Jaron gets into these situations, which it hasn't been as many – from a memorable perspective as last year, you're able to bring in a guy like Brandon Clark and the excitement stays there, even though maybe just dips a little bit, uh, just a touch, but Brandon plays a little bit differently and partners with Ja in a great way and you still can expect some big things, which is awesome. If you watch the fourth quarter, Brandon Clark, when Knicks actually started to make a run, was the key. Uh, He had like four or six of the biggest points of the game because it took whatever the life life the Knicks had yeah. and just completely shut it down. And he was doing like little things like he ran the floor twice yes. in a row. And it's amazing how people don't run the floor anymore. And he got two wide open layups. So Grizz next gen, a thing to me last night too, that really stood out was coaching. Like the Knicks looked like they, I mean, Fizdell was there who everyone thought was going to be an awesome coach. And, now the guys, Mike Miller, who I had, to, I had to check the Mike Miller. I was like, wait, did he leave? Like, <laughs> had no idea. Not former Grizzly Mike Miller. Yeah, not yeah. that guy. Current Tiger coach um, Mike, Mike but Miller. But, man, like, I just couldn't get over We kept talking about this during the game. You watch the Knicks offense, and it is horrendous. Like, they have zero flow, nothing going. It just looks so stagnant. And Taylor Jenkins, 34 years old, right, yeah. with a rookie point guard running the show, and, like, our offense – even when we're not, like, scoring, it, we're moving. Like, things are happening. You can tell there's a system. Like, people are getting good looks. Yeah. Uh, we lead the league in assists. And, yeah, we've had over 30 assists for the – I don't even – it's been, like, for the last two months, it seems like. I, um, it was crazy. It's really impressive with I Jenkins. Th- yeah, sure. We don't talk about Jenkins enough. I think he's – He's amazing. In the composure he had last night, like, you could tell. So, another thing – really, I know we're staying on this long. Um, but during the uh, review – of the play when they were trying to figure out who was getting the um, foul, who's going to get the ejections, whatever. The Knicks were just all standing like in the middle of the court, like all spread out. Jenkins had everyone on our team in a, like a tight huddle, like talking to every one of them. I'm sure saying like, don't do anything dumb, show class, like be respectful, just 
don't look like idiots like they are. Like, look at how or they're ta- acting and don't Taking do that. advantage of every moment that he has, to whether it's drawing up a play or getting his guys' minds right. Yep. It's just he's taking advantage. He's Yeah, he's really impressed me, man. I, uh, I'm super excited about him. I, yeah, we don't talk about him a ton, which is, I mean, who's going to talk about a coach? But the, he's been I, great. I threw this in our Slack uh, last night watching the game, and I know R.J. Barrett was out, but, like, Julius Randle was spending the most time out yeah. of anybody on their That's team at he the got point the guard. When you get the rebound, you just start <laughs> dribbling. <laughs> it really felt like a pickup game. Like, it felt like there were yeah, five right. guys who were just standing around and were like, yeah, let's. I guess we'll, we'll be a team. I yeah, don't know. It was bad. Um, can I throw a few stats out for you guys? Bring it. Um. Let's go game by game, actually. Detroit, 27 points, 47% shooting. Oh, gosh. Phoenix. Hold on. <laughs> Scrolling down. It's so many. It's 20 points, 53% shooting. Denver, 24 <laughs> points, 58% field goal percentage. New York, 27 points, 53% field goal percentage. Dylan Brooks. The highest score in the month of January for the Grizzlies in a month where they have already ten wins. I've been telling uh, y'all for weeks that this is this is how it's gonna go. I don't understand I don't understand why y'all haven't been listening to me. So um after last week when Will sort of pitched that Dylan is turning a corner for since the week, I've been sort of trying to play through my head like what what can I figure out that would maybe help prove this or help maybe serve as a foundation for how do we assess maybe objectively what Dylan's doing and have a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, line in the sand, if you will, for how we kind of measure him and look forward and all those sorts of things. I'm so nervous. Y'all, y'all stick with me through this for a second. We haven't seen this before. Y'all, this, this has new. not been discussed. This is just Brantley's brain playing with basketball reference, using all the great data that's available. And, you know, shout out to, you know, partnership and Google for helping me put this in a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, there are partners. What of it? Okay. So if you look at his 2020 campaign this year, uh, in games where he scored more than 27 points. Okay. So you look at those points and then you start to also match up field goal percentage, three points made three point attempts, three point percentage. Those are kind of like the things that without doing advanced stats, you can sort of look at it and say, that's where his impact is. He's maybe guarding a top defender, but he's not really filling up the stat sheet and assists or blocks or steals because he's not really asked to um, so much. So, he scored twenty. He scored more than twenty-seven points seven times this season. In his rookie season, just for a kind of a statement, he did that three times. Okay, so his rookie season, we're sort of saying, even though this is Dylan's third year in the NBA, he didn't really play last year at all. So this is sort of a second, sort of finicky, but whatever. He's a rising star. He's a rising still. star. Yeah. So on his first contract, even you know, we got a big decision on our head, hands. So he's done that seven times. However, if you sort of start to play with some of those stats across field goal percentage, three points made, three-point attempt, and the, and the percentages, where is maybe their sort of a evening off that may separate him or put him in a category of players that is sort of emotional historically for Grizzlies to where you're like, mm, this is his trajectory. I'm not really sure if we really like what is where he's going. 
all those sort of things. So what I'm sort of qualifying right now as Dylan's run is this, is that this season of those seven games, three times he's also made two three-pointers while also shooting 50% from three-point um, from three-point land at least, right? So he could have had two more than two three-pointers and at the same time shot 52% from the field goal percentage, okay? If you go and look, um, since the modern three-point era, which is 1984, and look at players in their third season, so let's say that my our theory on the whole second season thing is stupid and you have to actually measure him against other players in their third season, how many times have those players had similar stats in those same four categories, okay? So stick with me. I know this is sort of confusing. No, I'm, I'm tracking. Okay. So Dylan's done that three times. What I found is that players who, when you sort of start to get in the, they've done that eight times in their third season, that's where you start to see maybe like a, these are the ones that you want to keep on your team. So if you look at guards and forwards, which is sort of maybe the hybrid of what Dylan fits in, Reggie Miller did it, did it 12 times. Vince Carter, Damian Lillard, and Peja all did it 11. Durant, Hardaway, Nowitzki did it 10 times. Buddy Hill, LeBron, Kevin Love, CJ, Glenn Rice did it 9. Embiid, Houston, Jokic, Chris Paul, Terry did it 8. Okay. That sounds pretty nice. So... Now, so so you're like, duh, I would take any one of those players on my team, right? Now, when you go in and you actually look at players that did it between six and four times, you get a mix. You get some superstars, but you also get Andrew Wiggins. You also get Michael Beasley, who did it four times. Mm. You also get Rudy Gay, who did it three times. So I'm sort of proposing – that if we watch that sort of criteria of stats, if he starts to creep into the seven or eight, I'm not saying we have a superstar on our hands because that seems sort of crazy, but... It's a pretty interesting it's, indicator. It's an interesting indicator. If he hovers around the six times, that's like maybe a high usage where it's like he's high volume and it's sort of matching. He could fit into some of the Michael Beasley, Rudy Gay stuff where we're like, dude, I don't want another Rudy Gay on my team. We just got rid of that guy. It was great. So in case we had you know any ears glaze over... What did which is definitely possible? <laughs> what what <laughs> remind us of the the criteria? <laughs> yeah, Ty just fell asleep. Remind us of the criteria real quick of what you were just measuring, so that people can have this at top of at top least twenty seven points in a game. Okay, at least two three points made. Uh, does say two at least two three points made while shooting fifty percent from three point percentage, and from total shooting fifty two percent from field goal percentage. Okay, wow. That's pretty interesting. He's done that seven times? Uh, no. Dylan has done that three times this season. This season. He scored okay. m at least 27 points seven times this gotcha. season. Gotcha. Which but is the, like, nothing, you know, a lot of people do that. But that yeah. specific criteria, he has had three of these games That's so right. far. Okay. Right. So we are officially on watch for the 27 point, basically 50% sure. over two threes. Actually, so he did it. His seventh game of the season, he did it against Minnesota. We won. This is not going to be surprising because we don't lose when Dylan scores more than 20 points, which is whether or not you can trust that, I'm not really sure. I think we're 18-1 and one on the on the year when he scores at least 20. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. And he did it against New he – did, he did it against the Knicks, 
last night, and he also did it against Minnesota um, back in early January. So those are the three games he's done it. That's wild. I love that. 3-0 and in those stats. I love that. Um, so hopefully we can continue to see the validation there, and if it gets over seven, I suppose we have a party. What do you we say, have Ty? A major consideration. <laughs> um, okay, so real quick, let's run through the games. Unless y'all have anything else at a, at a higher level uh, to call out. Um, no, not really. Okay. Not at the moment. So Detroit, um, we were tied late at one oh five, and uh, then fourth quarter jaw. Uh, took over and also I, I would say Jaron had 24 points I think in the first half and had 29 for the game and then Dylan had a slower first half but then came up came uh, through in the second half so it felt like a team win and your for best sure. players came out and played like they should in the fourth yep um, also mentioning Brandon Clark had 15 and 11 uh, DeAnthony Melton had uh, 14 and 5 and 4 and they were both plus 27 and plus 21, respectively. Um, DeAnthony Belton has been sidelined for the uh, for a couple games. Sore body. Sore body. Load <laughs> management, baby. Someone said it's, it's something sore. Sore body. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Wait, is that serious? Is yeah, that I think someone did say that, but it's a sore hand, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, Phoenix uh, just felt like D- Booker came out and had 36 points. Shot 46%. Uh, we went up early. It was 30-18 to 18 at the end of the first quarter. Uh, they battled a little bit back in the, the third quarter. And, again, just pushed through and got the win in the, in the fourth. Anything from the Phoenix game? Um, I mean, not a ton. Yeah, it's just I, just I hate Phoenix, so I love beating it them. It is really nice beating a team like that because they yeah. are, you could say, conceivably on the same – at, in the same sort of timeline, they have a player like Booker who yep. should have made the All-Star team. Uh, I just remember, we didn't go back and uh, talk about the yeah, All-Star. Yeah, that's okay. But ja didn't make it. <laughs> ja didn't make it, and Shaq thought he should have. Lame. Yeah. Uh, well, I think when you look at just the summary of the box score in the Phoenix game, that's you know what you would be excited to see from a points sort of just distribution where Dylan had 20, Ja 23, Jaron 20, Valanciunas 12, Brandon Clark 10, Melton 10 off the bench. Like, that's a really good break, sort of even distribution of the players that you would hope would be scoring a lot. Yep. And um, from an activity perspective, you know, one of the things that maybe we haven't said, at least on this podcast, is at least um, Ja over the last four games is averaging right around 10 assists per game. Mm-hmm. Whereas his season average is right at seven. So I've sort of started to feel this from him. If you actually took out the New Orleans game where he, or I'm sorry, the Boston game where he had five assists, um, the previous two games before that Cleveland and New Orleans, he's literally averaging nine to 10 assists a game, which is um, what at least three over his season average. So he's, I think starting to feel a little bit something different from the game. I think we're starting to see maybe his court vision somehow even get better um, at this point in the season, which is really interesting. And uh, Phoenix was a great display of that. I think it's interesting because if you watch Ja, one of his move, this is his move every time. He they have the high screener, whether it's Valanciunas or Brandon Clark or whoever, uh, come and screen. Even Jaron sometimes he gets around the screen, 
they'll either switch or the guard will fight through. But regardless, the the defender will be on his back, and you see him stop in the middle, and then that's where his options open. It seems like, and so it's funny because in the first three quarters, I feel like he's being intentional about dumping it back off to Valanciunas, who's rolling, dumping it back out to Dylan, and trying to get everybody involved. And then in the fourth quarter, you see him just hit that floater or take somebody off the dribble every time. It's just like that is his go-to move. If you watch the games, you'll see him do that yeah. 80% of the time, Yep, uh, which is really unique because it seems unstoppable. Yeah, and his vision's nuts. So I feel like, I mean, I feel like a few people have mentioned this, that he sees like three passes all at once. Yeah. Um, and he'll like make an extra play and like pause a second. So there's a – when we played Minnesota at home a few weeks ago when John Jaron basically took over in the fourth, he essentially like double clut like turned back like twice. So he got by his defender, like fake like he was gonna pull back out, went back in the lane again, and then like finally threw it back. Um, and there's a clip that shows Robert Covington. So Jaron was at the top of the key. Robert Covington's cheated over, but then Jaw turned it back to the goal. And so Robert Covington like went back to his main guy and then Jaw turned around again. So he like saw so many things happening at once. And to speak on the Dylan thing, honestly, the his best asset is you kind of have those guys that like when they when it leaves their hand, you're like, oh, there's there's just no chance that's going. That's how Goodrich is to me, um, sadly. <laughs> that's fair. But like, like on the Wayne Ellington Award, yeah, 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 yeah pretty go. much. So when Dylan is like kind of floating between the corner and the and the wing, and he's just wide open, and Jaw gets in the lane and kicks it to him, like it's there's a good chance, like a standstill shot, like it's going in. And I can't think of many guys in the past that we've had, and I can't think of a type of player that we would want in the future to receive those passes because Jaw's going to get you the ball. That's one reason it really hurts. So Jay Crowder didn't play against Phoenix. Um, Kyle Anderson took his spot. Um, I love Kyle Anderson. I think he's great. Love his defense. I love how you can, like, start a break. Um he does, yeah, his his game's really fun to watch, kind of. I mean, it's not, but it is. But it's there are several sense. instances where he is in the game with Ja, and, of course, he's – because everyone runs to the corner. Even Jerry, You're talking like, about Kyle? Kyle Anderson, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'll run to a corner because that's what our offense is set to do. Um, and Ja will find him just wide open in the corner. And he either takes seven seconds to get a shot off so the defender recovers, or he just can't make a corner three. Um, so I think it really hurts. We'll talk about trade stuff later. I don't think he needs to get traded, but it's really tough for them two to play together, I think. Yeah, I think on, it's fun. The only positive that I think we've seen in the past couple of games with Kyle and Ja is he's so good. Kyle is so good leading the break. And yes, it, and it great does, at that. It does seem to free Ja up, I think, to maybe run the break more um, instead of having the ball in his hands. Yep. I think the other thing that I've just sort of – anecdotally noticed on Ja, and it, I, I think I started feeling this in the Phoenix game and I really noticed it last night in the Knicks game, is that I don't know how many players that I've ever noticed while watching NBA games that I would say that their athleticism took away from their court vision, meaning you're so attracted to Ja's athleticism that you fail to see at times how his court vision is maybe the leader in what his athleticism is doing right. for him. Meaning like he's going up and doing these ridiculous like 360 passes, but it's um, 
I would argue that his court vision is what's allowing him to use his athleticism to find those players and not the reverse. Mm. Like yeah. He sort of knows the players that are on him to draw them to him to then kick them out in the appropriate places. I think, right. I think there was a Jaron kick out that he had in the corner where it was like, that was, that was dumb. How did he figure that out? And um, it's his awareness of the court that, elevates his athleticism his vision dictates what he's going to do rather than his athleticism yeah yes. and like so he and sees the athleticism that complements right what he's he wanting sees to do something and he has the athleticism to do it exactly yeah yeah i think you just you mentioning kyle just then is he is he like the most forgettable person on our roster right now um because I we have not discussed in the main him rotation. I'd say yeah. Since the first episode, I think when yeah. we were just talking about players we liked a lot, and I, yeah. I still like Kyle, but it's unbelievable. Like I forget that sometimes that he's just he does like little things well. Like yeah, like Brantley was saying, he leads the break really well. Um, he's a really good passer, especially in transition and stuff. And he'll like he's one of the few people that get like a defensive rebound and immediately look up, which doesn't happen very much on our team. Um, and Ja like loves to run with him, but again, I think pairing them together is tough because um, neither one of them are like spot up standstill shooting threats. Jaw shot pretty well from the three, um, but that's not like not his game. He needs to have the ball in his hands, and we're at our best when Jaw's got the ball in his hands. And Kyle Anderson's main, I guess, attribute or the thing he's best at is with the ball in his it's hands, creating yeah. offense. Exactly. Yeah, um, but he's so been I think forgettable it can be because it's like. And his stat line has just been really yeah. non-unsexy. But, well, that and, you know, if you really look back, you know, from a game perspective, he really has a has not eclipsed 14 minutes ever. Yeah. Except yeah, just, when he for starts, the past, pretty much. For the past, like, five games. When Joe is out. When Jay's yeah, out. Yeah. And he so starts that's why he's been a little forgettable. Because he really just hasn't, that's been, true. He hasn't been used in big well, moments. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. The numbers back it up. Well, so we, we – we took care of business in the three games last week that we should have. Detroit, New York, Phoenix. Yep. The game that we were nervous about was Denver because Denver is in the top three seed in the West, and yet the Grizzlies led wire to wire. Uh, yeah. Really unbelievable. And I felt like the matchup to watch was, was Valanciunas versus Jokic. Valanciunas ended with 23 points and 12 rebounds. Um, I felt like in, in, in sort of – a tribute maybe to Mark Gasol. He elevated his play when there was a, a big-time Jonas player. is good, I mean, man. We never talk about him either. He is so solid. He's super solid. I, I think I mentioned it wasn't on the pod. I think I just told Brantley this. I was like, I want him to retire Grizz. And yeah. Brantley looked at me like I was insane. It was sort of a bold statement that I still haven't gotten over. I, I mean, why I think not? he's great. And the dude, like, again, I think this all leads back. I'll talk about a little bit more after we kind of talk about individual games, but this stretch, how it looked like we were just going to be disastrous. We had just gotten off two blowout losses. Um, and then we rallied back and went four in a row. Yeah, three of them were supposed to win. But those are still hard, like a back-to-back in New York. We got in New York last night at 3 a.m. But a part of all that, I think, is coaching staff is really good. I want to harp on them again. But also, like, everyone knows their roles. And, like, I don't remember – when's the last time Jonas, like, closed a game almost that, like, you can think of? If Jaron's not in foul trouble – like, BC is pretty much closing the game with Jaron. I guess if it's matchup-oriented, he won't. But Jonas sits, like, a lot of the fourth and seems clearly fine with it. I think, yeah. So, that's another guy who we gave him decent money. We didn't give him a huge contract, but it descending. So, you can already tell there he's willing to, like, work 
work with people. Um, I think he's been great. Yeah, he's been on a four-year, $45 million deal. Yeah, yeah, descending every year. Or three year, excuse me. Yeah, three to three. 45. Yeah, 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 16 uh, yeah. this year, 15 next year, 14 the year. That's right, that. yeah. And I think I th- uh, one of the things that just stuck out to me in the Denver game, and, and Will, I know you, you want to jump in on this, is that I think that you you look around the league and there's just some games. Last time we talked, it was like, man, this is not a JV game. Really looking at New Orleans, that was fresh in our brain. But there's some games, positively, like the Denver game, where you're like, how many teams have a center like JV where they can match up with Jokic, go toe-to-toe with them, and win? And I don't know if there are a ton of teams that – like look at a team like Boston, who's really struggling to find a good center. Yeah. Would they not rather have someone like JV versus sort of their kind of like piecemealed group of centers together? Now they have crazy athleticism, so maybe they're worried yeah. about it. Well, to me, with other teams, you have centers who you're you're having to – whether it's a um, – I'm going to use maybe Clint Capella as an example of a guy who's um, no obviously catches lobs, but most of his value is maybe this this defensive sort of like Jaron's role where he comes around like and a blocks rim protector. a rim protector. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So you have that, but then on offense, if he gets the ball with five seconds left in the shot clock good and has luck. to create a shot, yeah. good luck. Yeah. Uh, or it, same with like a guy like Gobert. They're used to catching these lobs, but they're they are elite in their defensive sure. stopping. But with Jonas, you have a guy who can stop Jokic on one end, but then he can give you 23 points Yeah, on and the other end. So we've done a few times where things have gone awry. We call a timeout, out of timeout play, everyone clear out. Jonas goes to A block, and we just throw him the ball. Yep. And he backs his guy down and does a little jump hook, and it's a really good look. He can get a good look pretty much whenever he wants, and that's been huge too. Yeah. I want to say this, and this will go into maybe my other dorky analysis that I have um, for this week, is that one of the interesting things about this team that's fun, that allows us to go toe-to-toe with a team like Denver, is uh, Triple J's flexibility and the way that he's able to play offensively and be very versatile defensively allows us to play Jaron with a guy like JV, whereas someone like Clint Capella can't. Totally. Um, or they're going to get destroyed on one side of the floor, and it leaves us flexible on both ends. Yep. And so that thought is what sort of triggered me looking into what Jaron did against Denver, which is where he made two three-pointers and had seven blocks. Um, and One on, foul, by the uh, way. Yeah, crazy. Only 13 players since the 84 season – have done that period so since 1984 only two only 17 or 13 players have made at least two three-pointers and had seven blocks only five players actually did this in their second season Rafe LaFrance Joel Embiid Christophe Porzingis Lamar Odom and Jaron only Jaron and Christophe's actually did this in their rookie season so Mm. Jaron's already done it twice once last year and once this year so when we talk about like rookie sensations or unicorns or whatever you want to call about Jaron, that type of stat, the ability to impact, play flexibly, maybe struggle offensively. I mean, he didn't have a huge point production. I think he only had like 10 points, yep. but he had seven blocks. He impacted the game in a different way 
Like, look, those are real numbers. I'm not making those up. That's coming from a great data source in basketball reference that's saying that there's other awesome players that have rarely done this. And you could say, like, the thing that I was just talking about with you guys is, like, think about the players who you would think might have done that before. Giannis? LeBron? No. They haven't. And so, is Jaron LeBron or, you know, Giannis? I'm not trying to make that claim. It's just interesting that – you know, their game didn't resemble it. His is, and I, I think provides us a really unique way to win versus maybe other players and teams have. And Porzingis is a really interesting comp for Jaren. Yeah, it is. I mean, yep. you have a guy who can just stretch the floor but is also just seven feet tall. Yeah. And can play on the block if needed but isn't necessarily – that's not his primary skill. Yeah, and, like, you had Carlisle, so Dallas's coach, Rick Carlisle, basically – probably two or three weeks ago, maybe longer, the TNT crew was like, get Porzingis on the block. Of course, like Shaq and Charles Barkley was like, get him on the block. He's not being a true low post guy. And Carlisle was like, yeah, we've done a lot of research in this, and that's just really inefficient. And we want Porzingis on the three because that's where he's at his best. And we're seeing that with Jaron, right? He is pretty much on the perimeter. I will say Jaron, I feel like, is a better perimeter defender than Porzingis, and he still has both knees intact, which Porzingis does not. Yeah, um, no but doubt. yeah, you're right. Similar game, similar point guards, right? I mean, Doncic is great at getting in the lane and making plays. So is Ja. Uh, any final thoughts as we uh, as we get to our next part of the podcast? Yeah, just yeah. One thing I I mentioned it earlier, but to have two blowout losses back to back where things we looked like we were like this could you know we could kind of spiral a little bit, like things might catch up to us. Especially against Boston, we looked our offense just looked really rough. Everyone looked tired. Um, the New Orleans game, it just kind of—I mean, it was just the perfect storm on their side. Um, but I remember after we were listening to the post game with Jenkins after the New Orleans game, and one of the reporters asked, "Hey, are you worried about this like carrying over to your team?" And he was just like adamant. He was like, "Definitely not." Like, the locker room is super strong. They were all saying, like, not our night. That's okay. We're going to bounce back. And they didn't bounce back. And I honestly, I was like, this, I mean, we could lose five in a row. We could lose six in a row. I don't know what's going to happen. And we come back home, win the next one, and then go, yeah, four in a row. And that's credit to the locker room, credit to, again, the coaching staff, which we probably don't give enough credit to. And this is kind of going to lead into our next little segment stuff. I feel like this locker room, what we have going, is, is kind of special, regardless of playoff stuff. So we're going to talk about trades here in a second. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tease. Uh, so we're going to have a, a quick interview with, uh, with my father-in-law, actually. Okay, I'll David save Boyd. it when we get back. And then, then we're going to save whatever you had, because I don't, I don't want to give anything away. We're going to have a big trade segment after the interview. Sorry, Ty. You're so mad at me right now. <laughs> I just totally cut you off. Can't wait to share in a second. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll get back to you. Let's welcome David Boyd on. All right, we now welcome on possibly the most special guest of all, and I'm not just saying that because he's my father-in-law, but it's my father-in-law. His name is David Boyd, uh, and he is joining us um, to give us uh, some cool behind-the-scenes look at at one of the, um, the functions of... The Grizzlies games at FedEx Forum or the Hustle games down at the Linder Center that you might not even think about, um, but just happens uh, like clockwork every time. So first of all, welcome to the pod, Mr. 
Mr. David. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you are uh, you. If you have ever watched a Grizzlies game, listeners, you have seen Mr. David. He is in the second row um, of the media courtside seats, and uh, he is uh, right in the picture when the I guess the refs come and maybe look at a replay. Uh, you're in that second row right there. So, first of all, just explain a little bit about what you do at a normal game. That's a good question. <laughs> what do I do? Because you um, do a lot of – you probably move it, around a little does. bit. It, so. you know, let me just go over sort of what I do as a team and what our team does. Uh, we have sort of a team of stats uh, crew that sits on the second row, and we have somebody who inputs – we have somebody who spots. We have somebody who we call a secondary person. And then we have generally the spot I work at uh, where I'm on the headphones with Secaucus, New Jersey. And the inputter is typing in whatever the spotter tells him. So starting from the jump, you know, they throw the ball. If we have to, and everything's by numbers. So you would say if, if uh, Jaron wins a toss, you know, 13 tips it to 12, you know, to jaw. Mm-hmm. And then everything's from numbers from there on, and everything that happens on the court that you can possibly think of, the NBA records, or once it recorded. So the uh, spotter uh, calls all that out. The inputter types it all in. Secondary is sort of like a checks and balances. And then if something is spotted in New Jersey and they want us to review if somebody may have had a block, and sometimes in, in the NBA people are so quick, you know, two different guys will block a shot, and so we need to see – did 13 get it or did 15 get it or who got it first? And so a lot of times New Jersey will call and I'll be on the headphones with them. And then during a uh, free throws or a timeout, we have a big monitor that sits there in like a DVD. We can go back and review certain plays. And our goal and the NBA's goal is to get it right. And so that's what we do, uh, you know, the entire game. So when you is the secondary the one who's on the headphones or is it the spot? He's on the headphones. Um, the only one that's really on the headphones during a game is me. Is is everybody else is where they're communicating with one another, and long as the music is not too loud at the <laughs> forum, which as an old person that's one of my gripes, but uh, <laughs> my only gripe. But uh, usually we can communicate when we don't need headphones. Um, and so uh, even when it gets playoff atmosphere, real loud, uh, it's we can still communicate and. And that's what it's key. Uh, you know, the referees make a call. We have to make sure we key in the correct, you know, if you drew the foul, um, I fouled you, or, you know, uh, you know, whoever committed the foul, who drew the foul, uh, who the foul was on. Um, and then you record, you know, what referee made the call. Um, mm. And so it's just real interesting, all the different stats the NBA wants. And so I'm going to get back to kind of the specifics and, and ask more questions. But first, before th- – for that i'm just interested how did you get your start doing uh this and when, when was the first year that you started um working me personally the first year was the first year the grizzlies came here from vancouver um so 2000 2001 sometime around 2000 2001 i was part of the university of memphis uh stats crew um and when we heard that the Grizzlies were, you know, coming to Memphis, we inquired about uh, if we could help them with stats. And so most of our crew started out as being from the Tigers crew. We've added and, and dropped some people, you know, people have moved, et cetera, through the years. 
but most of our original crew is still in some form or fashion part of uh, today's crew. That's so, crazy. That's 20 years. Almost. Yeah, there's a lot of experience on our crew. And, um, um, you know, in, in most of our crew, either even still like uh, today, you know, may score high school games or other college games or University of Memphis women's games. So our stats crew, uh, you know, Grizzlies and, and Tigers is – the first priority, but you might see this crew, you know, doing games at Hustle or uh, some local high school. you were there school. last night. Right? Yeah, I was at the Memphis Hustle game doing the book, doing the official scoring. Um, and then the stats crew was sitting right next to me during the game. Uh, we just have one row, thankfully, at the Hustle games. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we, we score their games too. So a lot of yeah. the same people score the same, same uh, you know, both the Hustle and the Grizzlies. So since you've been there from the beginning, I'm guessing that a lot has changed. As far as what they're maybe requiring, I feel like there's just so there's their attention to detail has probably gotten to a, a higher level. De- of, definitely, uh, when when I first started keeping stats, probably like at a middle school game, what stats used to be basically the book. You kept a uh, scorebook. You kept fouls, points, timeouts, maybe technical fouls. That was basically it, and then. When we started with the uh, Memphis Tigers, you know, you added, you know, somebody kept minutes, somebody kept uh, turnovers and block shots, and stuff, and that was just with a pad and a pencil, you know, pencil and a no- notepad. Um, computers came in uh, probably in the '90s. We started, you know, having it more computerized, and then we've had just with the Grizzlies a couple different computer systems that we've dealt with. Um, and the NBA over the years has increased on what all you know they want from us. Like I said, we didn't record what referee initially made the calls, yeah. and now we do. Or who fouled who? You know, we just knew the foul was on you. Well, I you know drew it, and so yeah, um, you keep that stuff now. Um, it's just amazing what all they want. A few years ago, they asked us to keep assist like if you threw it to me and I got fouled now in the real world that's not an assist if I go to the free throw line and make it but we kept them for a year because they wanted to see if that was a stat they wanted to change and so they've not adopted that but um that was something when it was interesting we kept it for at least a year when did uh New Jersey Secaucus come into play um remember two years ago and I think because they went with a different software company uh was the first time that we got the NBA uh, Secaucus evolved, and and that was the first time where they will call us and ask us to check stuff. And it's really, to me, it's a positive thing because our job has always been to get it accurate. Mm-hmm. And all Secaucus does, it gives us another set of eyes. While we're working the game, you know, people walk in front of us, players come to the table, you know, Shaquille O'Neal blocks the sun. So, you know, <laughs> you couldn't see what was happening when he was at the table. And so... Certain coaches love to stand right in our view. So sometimes we, you know, we don't know who made the pass. We have to guess, you know, maybe who made the pass to somebody. Usually we can look at it on our replay, but sometimes it's nice that Secaucus can also call and just say, you know, sometimes the, the you know, if it's a steal or a uh, turnover or a block shot, it's all defined by where the ball is at the time the ball's hit. You know, mm. you've gathered and you're on your way up, it's a shot. If you gathered but you haven't really moved up yet towards the basket, it's a steal. And so sometimes we'll get in a discussion with Secaucus saying what we think, and then they give their point what they think, and we come to a conclusion. And a lot of times I feel like that's my job as the person on the headphones is I'm talking with our crew who's live at the game, 
and I'm talking with the folks in Secaucus who are reviewing it, trying to make sure we see the same thing and then agree on what is the proper or best call. So if there is a situation where you are seeing something and then Secaucus is seeing something else, who gets the final say in that circumstance? Well, I would love to say we do, but in, I think in reality, Secaucus probably does. Um, they review every game, so you know they'll go back occasionally, not very often, and, and they may think one of our calls may have been a 50-50 call, but they may think, you know, it should be a steal for you instead of, you know, a different player. And, again, it's one of those – usually it's a 50-50 play. Most of the times uh, they agree with what we call. And, and they do a wonderful job in the summer. They uh, take us out to Vegas or they take all the crews out to Vegas and train during summer league, NBA summer league. So they want to make sure every arena is scoring it the same way. So if Jaws playing at home – the same pass he makes in New York City is scored the same way. So they want to make sure there's not any favoritism. And so I think they would do a really wonderful job of ensuring that takes place. Yeah, and you were just telling a, a funny story about a theory behind John Stockton in Utah. What were you saying? Well, earlier? there was always you know rumors back in the day that uh, when John Stockton would average 14, 15 assists a game, you know, running the pick and roll with uh, Kyle Malone. Um, or Carl Malone, excuse me, you know, it was interesting that were they really legitimate assists? Of course, every game went on TV back then. And so, you know, you just never know. And so that ensures that. And I was telling you, I think earlier, just before we were recording, you know, like I always felt bad for Mike Conley because Mike would throw the ball into Zebo or somebody who would back an opponent down and he wouldn't get an assist because the way the NBA defines an assist, you have to immediately lead to a basket. So if I throw it to you, you've got to be, you know, on the move or going to the basket or catch it and shoot. So if you create your own shot, which is basically what Zebo did 90% of the time, Conley wouldn't get an assist for those. So I always felt bad for Mike and thought he really deserved more assists, yeah. but it was just the system they were running at the time. Yeah, that's interesting for sure. Um, so I, w one thing I always thought was, was neat and, and didn't know was, was going on was how often the stats that are recorded get distributed oh. to everybody sitting down. So could you take us through what happens there? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, back, again, I go back to keeping stats probably early 90s. I started uh, helping the University of Memphis. It could have even been in the late 80s. And, you know, back then uh, there was a, a gentleman that I was spotting, and he was typing in what was happening. And during, you know, timeouts, we might print, a few boxes for some of the reporters of you know at the table and this is way before you know there was a newspaper reporter and from the home team maybe from the visiting team you know you might have somebody else there from media but now with all the different media outlets and social media outlets there's so many there that every time there's a stoppage in play not not a foul shot but every time there's a timeout or a long delay they'll print box scores and so to me, if you're a member of today's media, it's so much easier to, to be at a game. I mean, in the old days, you couldn't – of course, we didn't have the opportunity either. You couldn't tweet during a game or all that kind of stuff. Right. But now you essentially can come to a game and do not have to watch it because you have a stat monitor available for it, it right at your table. You have a stats handed to you all the time. Um, so – there's a lot of information that's given to you now, whereas in the old days, you had to keep your own stats pretty much, If even if you're a reporter, you know, and so 
to me, I don't know if the young uh, younger reporters realize that how good it is that they've come along at this you know tech time now where everything's basically at their fingertips. And they have every single timestamp for every everything, right? It's just and is it delivered electronically to them, or do you have to print them off? Well, not we, you, but just in general, they, they'll hand out uh, box scores. Uh, distribute box scores at each of those timeouts to all the media that's there and wants them. They come by early in the second quarter and give you the play-by-play for the first quarter and all the stats for the first quarter. The monitor that you're looking at has all the stats on it, and it has the the previous play on the bottom each time. And so you can see runs. It will tell you how many lead changes. Oh, see, that's A lot nice. of the stuff you probably see tweeted out probably came from watching the stat monitor, <laughs> we like to think. And so uh, – it's just nice. It's it's wonderful way that people who cannot be in the arena, I guess even people in the arena, if you're at home somewhere on your phone or whatever, your tablet, watch on TV, you can quickly get the information because it is so readily available now. You know, so yeah. that's, that's one thing by the NBA keeping all these stats. Doesn't matter where you are in the country. If you got your ESPN app pulled up or whatever, you can basically follow along with the stats we're putting in because that's what you're seeing displayed. Have you ever had to work that computer that is the the uh, you know the spotters narrating? But have you ever had to be in the other person's shoes? No, they're, they're, we've got a guy uh, by the name of Tom McDaniel that basically inputs most games, um, and he's been doing this for a number of years for the Tigers and Grizzlies, and he it, it's unbelievable. You can just imagine how fast the NBA game is, but and it, again, it's all numbers, and he hits you know so and so. Field goal attempt or made field goal attempt, the number, if the rebound, you know, sometimes as soon as they get the rebound, the ball's knocked out of their hands. There's a steal. And so he's able to do that. And there's a caller. We've had a caller, the same gentleman for a number of years. He does a wonderful job of calling it because he knows exactly the right order to call it yeah. so that when Tom has to enter it, it's it's just like second nature. So it's almost like its own language. It, it really is. It really is almost like its own language. Uh, just – you know, you and me might be at a game and say, well, Ja just took a jump shot. Well, there is there is a just a jump shot in the NBA, but there's also a running jump shot, a pull-up jump shot, a step-back jump shot, a bank shot, you know. Then you got all your hooks, your floaters, you know. The chance, you've got, I think, about 25 or 30 different descriptors describe each layup, finger roll, turnaround, so... Gene, who's our main caller, does a wonderful job of telling Tom the exact order and what kind of shot it is. And then we got some great guys who are secondary, so they're also keying in things. Anything that Tom doesn't get exactly right, maybe the shot was Tom put it in on the monitor like 18 feet, and it really needs to be 16 feet, <laughs> or it needs to be in the paint instead of out of the paint. And so you, all that is charted. And then if you see ever see fast break points, you know that's generated by us. We have to decide did they shoot quickly enough in the general rules long if they shoot before af- not after a made basket but anytime after a miss if you shoot with 18 seconds on the clock or more it's a fast break mm. if it's 17 or less it's not a fast break oh that is interesting so that's how you sort of decide that in the end so even if even if the de- let's say there's like four or five maybe one guy one defender trailing but we put up a shot with 20 seconds left on the shot clock that's a fast break it's, it's a basket. fast break yeah man that's interesting and and you sometimes you think it's a fast break because maybe the rebound took a while to get controlled of, and then by the time they get it to Ja, maybe there's only 18 on the clock. Well, Ja quickly comes up, feeds somebody, somebody shoots a three with 15 on the clock. It seems like it's a fast break, but it's actually not because it's already you know 
the shot clock is already too far down. So you just have to keep your eye on that part of it too. But uh, again, there's it's just a interesting way to watch the game. A lot of times, though, it's so with the NBA, it's pretty intense with everything you're doing that after when the game ends, if you ask me what the final score was, I probably don't even know. You know, <laughs> yeah, because I was about to ask actually if if you're even able to get into the like if you're able to make any observations apart from what is literally happening from from second to second. <laughs> a lot of games you can't, especially you know there's so much going on, especially if Sakakis is asking us to check stuff. So where a lot of times you know you might get a chance to catch your breath during a free throw or a timeout. If you watch us usually during a free throw or a timeout, we're reviewing something, yeah. checking something. It may not even be Sakakis. You know we may have written down we're not sure who got that block or let's go back and look at the assist. You know at 10:58 did did. Job make a move to the basket after he got the pass, or did he, you know, we sort of want to look at it again. And so we're usually constantly reviewing things. You know, a lot of times if you're at a game, you can check out somebody, somebody's doing crazy stuff in the stands or something like that. We basically cannot let our eyes get off the court because in the NBA, you never know. Look at last night's game for an example. If the stats crew in Madison Square Garden probably thought the Knicks right there at the end of the game were just throwing the ball in, they probably looked up and all of a sudden tried to figure out why did Crowder have the ball if they'd taken their eye off. Because, right. you know, he, he you don't assume he's going to be down there at that time with 50 seconds to go, whatever. So that's why you got to constantly keep your eye on the game, especially the spotter. The spotter cannot get distracted for any reason because if he misses it, it then then you're having to go back and try to figure out. And, and you can't – when the shot goes up, you can't say, I don't know who shot it. You have to give some number, even if you can't see the player's number. And – that's where, because of the experience on our staff, we pretty much know the guys in the NBA. So you know, even without seeing a number, that you know that's so and so on the Knicks or so and so in the Trailblazers, and so uh, that helps. You know, especially with nowadays, it seems like every time a team comes in, they're wearing a different uniform than what they usually yeah, wear. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you had mentioned a little bit earlier before we were recording um, that you don't have a lot of experience in the in the I guess the front row and what all but could you take us I guess through just what those roles are because it seems like there's you know 10 yeah. 10 to 15 sometimes that are down there or just from the the, the eye in the stands but what are the what are the specifics of the layout down there yeah definitely I would say not counting the runners who go and make the copies for us which is a very important role there's probably eight or nine key people that are at the table every game to make sure the game is properly done um the first person that that you might see is at midcourt you probably see somebody we call the official score that's where the referees usually go over before the game or that's where they're supposed to report the fouls and the official scores job is to keep the score, the running score, individual scores, individual fouls, how many timeouts teams have, any technicals. That's what his job is. That's the official book. Um, next to him, and sometimes there's a, we have a female official score too, so I'm just using him as just right. a reference there, but we do have females on our staff. Next to the official score, we have uh, the scoreboard operator. So when the score, uh, somebody scores, it's, not automatically goes up on you know in the system he has to make sure he puts it on the right team and sometimes it can be confusing you've coached games where a team's going to the left so you want to put it on the left scoreboard and then somebody yells out you know no that's right. the wrong side so you got to just make sure you know he does a good job of making sure the score is right next to him is the clock operator um a lot of people probably know the refs wear the clocks really on their 
battery packs. They they control the clock. See, clocks. I actually didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, each of the referees, besides their whistle, it t- and it's tied into their whistle, has a battery pack that stops and starts the clock, that they can stop and start the clock. So they are the official stoppers you know, and starters of the clock, but we have somebody who manually can do it also that's on our crew in case, you know, the referees for whatever reason forget to do it and, and it needs to be stopped or if they want to reset a clock. So that's our clock operator. And then next to the clock operator is the 24-second clock operator, t- which to me is probably the most challenging job or mm-hmm. one of the most challenging because if he or she messes up, everybody in the building knows and the referee stops the game and sometimes that's chastises true. them. And so they have a lot of pressure. But we have, we have a couple guys that do a great job. Uh, again, all these are – wonderful guys and, and girls that do a wonderful job in the front row and their jobs like i said if you see a clock malfunction or if you see the score wrong uh if you see the 24 second clock wrong their jobs you know you would visibly in the arena see it whereas in the back row the media probably would see if we did something wrong or somebody at home might see if we did something wrong but generally we've got a chance to correct our mistakes before the end of the game whereas the front row i guess is more exposed you know their their mistakes are more seen but uh again very experienced crew um and a lot of people that can wear a lot of different hats that can that, that can do you know front row jobs or back row jobs so like i said in total there's probably four people in the front row um that are with our crew each night and there's probably five people in the back row uh each night uh that, that work so we probably have a, at least nine people that are making sure all the stats and everything's recorded correctly for the nba and i guess you know it's the, the radio broadcaster like Eric Hasseltine and then the TV broadcasters, Pete and Brevin, probably rely on what you do a lot. Or do they have their own person well, who's... And again, we're very blessed in Memphis. We've got, you know, Pete and, and Eric as good as you can find on the TV and the yeah. radio side. And what they generally do is each of them will have their own spotter. They'll have a monitor with all our stats on it. But they may have... Uh, their individual stat person just keeps stats on, like Zion Williamson's back, just keeps stats on him. You know, how many minutes mm. has he played? You know, uh, how many shots? You know, they might want him to keep a runs. You know, like if somebody goes on a 10-0 run over two, tw- two minutes and 12 seconds, a lot of times their individual spotters will do that. So, so they each, uh, both the radio crew for home and radio, both the home and uh, visiting TV We'll each bring or, or we'll supply them their own spotters. Um, uh, mm. Sometimes a national network will come in, ESPN or going to College Day, CBS would come in for the Tigers game. They'll usually bring their own person. They'll bring somebody that's been doing stats for them that their talent, they're the people who are speaking on the mics, really trust and know what they want from each game. So a lot of times they'll bring their own people in. That's really interesting. Um so you've done a lot of games over the years. Do you have any any specific memory that just sticks out as far as a game that you were at that just will be will always be uh, maybe like a favorite game or anything like that? Something interesting. Probably the the goes back to the first time you know when the grit and grind group made the playoffs. You know uh, some of those uh, advancing. I think it was the Western Conference Finals. Just. I can't think of this just one particular game, but just with the yellow towels, you know, flying around and the crowd and the noise, it just great atmosphere. Uh, those those are definitely some fun games. Um, I think back to one game we were at the Pyramid years ago, and uh, 
there was a certain referee that was trying to give Lorenzen Wright his second technical, but he didn't realize he'd already given him an earlier technical. And it was real funny because all of a sudden, like, he just looked at, let's say you were on the court and gave you and said, no, give the technical to Will Walker, you know, and, and even though you weren't involved in the play because he didn't want to throw Lorenzen out of the game. And so it's always funny to see sometimes how different referees operate. Um, again, they're, they're all class acts, but uh, some are, uh, you know, more friendly to us, you know, with you coach a middle school basketball team and, you know, everybody in your league has a zero to five number or a, you know, one eleven right. to 15. Yeah. So you can easily hold up your fingers and you know pretty much that's 15 or 51. Well, in the NBA, that could be six, that could be 61, you know. So a lot of times when the referees will mouth to us, the stats crew and say, found 15, found 51 or something like that, we really appreciate it. But sometimes you'll get a ref who just quickly gives you, you know, <laughs> and they may not have the straightest fingers. Some of them have broken fingers. <laughs> so a lot of times, if you ever had a game and you wonder why the PA doesn't quickly save the fouls, we're still trying to figure it out because, you know, if you can't sometimes read the fingers and sometimes <laughs> we'll have to hit the horn and bring them over and ask the referee. And some don't mind that. They appreciate we're trying to get it right. Some just, like, think. They're just like, what? Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. like, we're, you know, we should be able yeah. to figure that out. And so – Again, I mean, again, they're all class acts. They just have, just like people, they all have different personalities as far yeah. as dealing with them. Man, well, this has all been so interesting. I always love hearing about what you do and the rest of the crew. The the true unsung heroes of the <laughs> NBA, I would say. But uh, thanks for uh, coming and sharing. This, is, this has been great. Well, thanks for having me. And again, we appreciate the Grizzlies for uh, letting our stats crew, you know, do each of the games because uh, – uh, we enjoy it, and I think we've got a good crew. It sounds like it. Thanks again. All right, thanks again to uh, Mr. David Boyd. Major brownie points for me. Um, <laughs> so we would be remiss if we did not um, mention the passing of Kobe Bryant. Um, and I want to do it sort of in this context of uh, the Grizzlies history moment, and then I'm going to let uh, Ty and Brantley chime in with any thoughts they might have as well um i've been working on a project that we're going to be rolling out here uh i'm not going to promise any sort of date because um it's turned into a very big project but um i've been studying uh the concept of grizz killers and uh kobe bryant was the absolute number one grizz killer um and you can look no further than his game against the Grizzlies on uh, March 22nd of 2007 when he came to the FedEx Forum and dropped 60 points, which is still the record for the highest amount of points scored um, against the Grizzlies, and it wasn't. Um, he shot 54% and just absolutely um, gutted the Grizzlies, and the Lakers ended up winning by only two. Uh, the Grizzlies team that they were playing wasn't too bad, but and Kobe's team, if you look at it, Kwame Brown and Smush Parker were two of the starters. Um, it was one of those teams where he was having to do just about everything. Um, the guy was just a, an animal. He was. He was an animal. He was one of the um, the most competitive guys you will ever see, um, and he. It there's a big, big hole now in the yep. NBA world without him. Um, you had to think that just with his, what he was doing both with his, his daughter and working on just a lot of basketball-related stuff with her, but also 
um, what he was doing. He's just coming to games. He it felt as though he was going to be present uh, in the NBA world for just years and years to come, and uh, he will be missed. Um, guys, do y'all have anything you want to share about that? Uh, nothing specific. Um, but yeah, it's just super sad. Um, so I got the, I uh, found out because Will, you slacked a link to Woj and I was like, someone, Iggy just got traded for sure. Um, so I looked down, opened the link and it's his tweet about basically just saying Kobe Bryant has died in a helicopter crash. Um, truly got sick to my stomach, which is nuts. Um, I don't know why it hit like a lot harder than a lot of other things that can happen. You hear so, so many terrible things happen all the time. Um, but for some reason that hit super hard. And I think because it was crazy unexpected, um, like you th- and people have said this, like you think of Kobe and like almost immortal, mm-hmm. right? Like bigger than life itself, definitely bigger than basketball. Like he's Kobe Bryant. Um, everyone knows him around the world. And it happened just like that, like a fluke thing, like a helicopter crash. And apparently this helicopter pilot was like phenomenal. And they were traveling like from one area in California to another. It's not like it was some long trip. Um, So, yeah, I think that was my biggest thing. Just super unexpected, super sad. Kobe was great. Uh, Everyone can learn from Kobe for sure. Uh, Meant a lot to the game. Uh, Loved watching him play. He was a stud. Uh, But, yeah, just super sad. I think one of the things that, as I've reflected on this, Ty, and you used the words immortal, and that sort of comparison, there's been other, I think, you know, media members, whether it's been Jimmy Kimmel or other folks who have maybe used <coughs> language like superhero and things like that to describe Kobe. And I think it's when you look at maybe the impact that it's having first within sort of the NBA community, primarily with players and the way that they are uh, opening up about the impact that it's having on them and the way that they're sharing maybe within their close friends, you've got, you know, guys like Kendrick Perkins or Shaq, I think maybe historically closed off kind of big tough guys who are opening up and apologizing publicly to different, you know, folks or maybe admitting to things that they uh, had missed or, or, or feel like that they missed out on and just maybe loving on Kobe in the way that they really meant to kind of breaking down that, that typical masculine persona. And then, you look into also maybe just the 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 superhero thing that we're all looking at and it's like folks that followed the NBA you expected Kobe to be able to show up and if he wasn't putting up 60 he was having a 60 point impact on the game from his competition the way that he led his team members the way that he fueled everyone and you ex- you expected superhero like activity from him so much so that as a Grizzlies fan, you hated going to games when the Lakers were in town just because, you know, there was this animosity. It was like, well, all these Kobe fans, these fake Kobe fans are going to be here instead of actually Grizzlies fans. And and then when you hear news that someone like that is tragically taken away, it's unjust. It feels unjust. 
And then it trickles down to even casual NBA people to where you're just like, man, that it just, it gets at you in a different way. And, you know, to, for, for me, I believe that this isn't our in place. And so when you see we're, we're made to want that superhero thing to come true. And it's like, I know that I have a savior that's done that in Jesus. And so I, I think that there's some sort of thing that, that ultimately I think potentially God is using for his good to do that. Maybe even through some terrible unjust situation like Kobe and, that's what I want to believe. And that's what I, I think through faith do believe. And so I, it's from a pop culture perspective, if you want to say that, or just the way that (laughs) you're starting to see that, I think in other faith members in the NBA community, it's having that type of impact and it's in a hard way. It's, it's really hard. It's been really weirdly hard on, on me and and other people around me. But at the same time, it's also, I think sort of turning into like this beautiful thing that maybe can have a, a potential positive impact in a lot of areas. And and hopefully, you know, what I would like is, is for, you know, God's kingdom. For sure. Um, just in his honor, I let's pause 24 seconds here. And uh, then we'll pick back up with the rest of the podcast. All right, we will uh, pick back up here and close out this episode of the Grizzed In Podcast. Uh, Next week is the trade deadline, exactly one week from today. And the Grizzlies are expected to be uh, a major player in this trade deadline. So um, let's talk trades, guys. What do we we think, what do we hope, but also what do we think realistically will happen? I hope we only trade Iggy. Uh, he He took my thing. That's that's what I was that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I really Great do believe minds. that. I really do believe that. I think I think we should just trade Iggy. And it goes back to what I was I was saying earlier. So when we hired Jenkins, when we had everything, just this complete rehaul of everything, front office, uh, new stars, grit and grinds. Officially, like we don't have anyone left from any of that era. Maybe you could argue Dylan's from that era, but not really. Um, new coaching staff completely. Um, everything's new. And one thing Jenkins kept preaching over and over and over again is culture. He's like, we are trying to build a culture. We are trying to make something sustainable. And that's crazy hard to do, right? Like not a lot of teams can create this sustained cult, like the Spurs do it and people consider him them the greatest Maybe franchise in all of sports. The Patriots are also able to do it. But, like, teams aren't able to do it. Even great, great. Like, you, we play the Knicks. Like, look at the Knicks. They have all their resources. But they, they're, they have nothing else. So, I think it's crazy important. And I'm not even including playoff stuff right now. If we make the playoffs, awesome. Even if we don't make the playoffs. I think it's very important for not just the near future, but just the ultimate future 
that we keep pretty much everyone on the current roster. And I, I mean, I could be talked out of it if, again, we'll talk about Jay Crowder stuff. Um, Brantley mentioned he's untradeable. This is like a month ago. <laughs> How he knew fun. it would come to this, <laughs> I have no clue. Um, but yeah, I think I think building a culture is very, very important. And I think all the guys on the team, from Jonas, from Jay to Solo, everyone plays a huge part in that. And I think developing Ja and Jaron and Dylan and Josh Jackson is now on the team. I think little things like that could go a very, very long way, not yeah. just in the near future, but in the distant future to just build these guys up to, yeah, it's, we're building something special. And I would hate to see it just, I don't know, get affected. And I know it's the NBA and stuff like this happens all the time, but I feel like we really do have something more going besides the win and loss comma like you can just see we just it looks it looks good it looks special what we have so let me ask it this way and maybe first with a little bit of a setup is that jay and solo and iggy to me seem like the three most probable players definitely that could be moved you know in the deadline period solo is on a big contract so it's going to be really hard for a team to match him. And you could arguably say that his production has been better than Jay's has, I think, maybe. From if, an efficiency from standpoint, an efficiency for sure. Standpoint. Jay's obviously starting, so it's different. Jay has had a little bit of a rough go. He's had some really big moments, but maybe not consistent. Uh, and Iggy is sort of obvious and on his own. I think my question is, you know, when we were doing – you know, trade breakdowns at the beginning of, um, you know, our podcast relationship with you all, we, we looked at maybe some options where you would have to throw in Dylan into some of those types of trades to make things work. And I just don't feel like, cause this is not objective that any type of pick or asset that we're going to get back in the trade deadline period is going to be good enough to at least continue this team forward from an emotional perspective. For now, sure. Um, I also would love to see one of Jay or Solo re-sign to a decent deal um, that could at least keep him on our roster to start next year and then be used for a signing trade maybe later down the road if that's needed. Um, because let's just say it this way. If we're experiencing the same thing next season – where we're competing for the eighth seed, that to me still feels sort of ahead of schedule. Yeah. So I would why, agree, yeah. why mess that up when you're going to have more salary cap to go get something different and you can at least keep some of these veterans around to help continue the momentum? Yeah. I, okay, I agree. And also I think that it's, to me, Definitely important to keep one out of the two of your active guys. So either Jay or, or Solo. Uh, Iggy, obviously, get him out of here. But I I do, I am not opposed to getting a deal for one of those. I will actually be a little disappointed if we don't. Like I think I'm there. What type of deal? Um, so, for instance, I don't know what the Timberwolves are going to be doing this, this uh, deadline. A lot of people think that they're going to be shopping – Robert Covington, they've obviously had a really a down year. Um, they are running, to me, they're kind of running out of time with a guy like Carl Anthony Towns. 
Um, it feels like the Anthony Davis situation. They bit. need to make some sort. They, they're in this weird mode yeah, where they have to. They're they're rebuilding yet they want to win now. They're in that weird in between. I feel like a um, a trade that gets as much money off of their books for maybe this summer uh, to offer overpay someone like uh, Malik Beasley or somebody who's a restricted free agent. Uh, a Joe Harris is another one, just somebody who can come in and basically be the opposite of what Wiggins is. Yeah. Um, so uh, like a Solomon Hill for Gorgie Jang, and I don't know what the asset as draft capital would be there. I would assume that the Grizzlies would want something if they're going to take an extra year of Gorgie Jang. Um, but something like that where we yield some sort of draft asset um, would be fine with me. Crowder, it's hard. I know we had talked about the Nate Duncan podcast where one of their fake trades was Crowder to the Trailblazers for Trevor Ariza yep. and a uh, conditional first, I think. which First-round pick, this lottery protected this year, so it would – Portland would keep it, but also lottery protected next year, thinking Portland would be better, less injuries, and we would get a late first round pick. So I'm just going to say, I don't like that. Yeah. What you just, I'm more down with what you're discussing for solo a little bit, but I don't like the the Trailblazers option. Well, yeah, because, I mean, he signed a two year, $25 million deal this offseason. So he would be on our books for another 12 and a half, 13 million. Yep. For next season, and he's he's really old. I mean, yep. Crowder's still sort of in his prime. So it's an interesting uh, back and forth because, I mean, Solo is one of these locker room guys that you don't – he's not as vocal as Jay is. Like, he's not going to be as demonstrative like last night in the New York Knicks. I think I think the Grizzlies are in love – or Grizzlies fans are in love with Jay Crowder after sure. last night. Um, but Solo is another guy that has – it sounds like from the people that are inside has just as big of an impact on the locker room is just as important. So I do think if this team is going to make any type of run this season and they are ahead of schedule, one of those two guys is important, but I'm, I wouldn't necessarily, in my opinion, limit my thinking to just Iggy. And I'll make a a quick point because Ty, you were sort of hinting on it. I think that if the Grizzlies don't try to see what they have in Josh Jackson, then they, haven't they have maximized that trade as much as anyone could have could mentally think was possible when it happened however now that there's some roster spots opening up he's done so well in the g league with the hustle and now he's you know got his first minutes with the grizzlies last night against the knicks if he sort of starts to show signs enough to where you maybe could re-sign him to a decent deal at least for this year, I think those veterans are going to help stabilize some sort of environment. Not to say that he's going to disrupt something crazy, but it is just a new player who was a previous top draft pick, and they prov- he, they're going to provide some foundational support to a guy like that that he hasn't ever had in his career, no, yeah. ever, with You're the right. Suns. And I, th- I just think that that is really important. And, again, it's just stuff that you can't measure – and I'm maybe Ariza provides you that if you get him back in the in the Trailblazers, but I don't know. I just yeah. no guarantee. Yeah. It's not proven, and it's it'll be an interesting test. This trade deadline will be the first one with the new front office and Taylor Jenkins. And we had heard from multiple media members now who are on the podcast, and Peter Edmiston and David Cobb, that were saying that the Shout collaboration out. is an important part of that relationship. And if Jenkins strongly feels like either Crowder or Solo is providing a 
necessary influence in that locker room, who knows? The front office yeah. could work with him Your on that. Your culture point is right on. Yeah, and I don't think Jay I, – I think Jay would be the last to go for sure. Um, it came out – Kind of when trade stuff was was sparking probably a month or two ago. I don't. I'm terrible with timeline stuff. But basically, one of the ESPN, one of their ten guys that cover the NBA nationally. There's so many of them. Someone said that basically Memphis is essentially like okay with keeping Jay. We're not really shopping him that much. Um, so my thing about him is. If we do re-sign Jay, like Brantley was talking about earlier, like that's a long-term asset, right? So, like, let's say we do ex- sign him this summer to a three-year deal worth the mid-level, which is like not the Kyle Anderson contract, roughly. Um, we still have that asset, and we were talking earlier before that we have Utah's first-round pick, we have Golden State's first-round pick, we have all of our other first-round picks. If we get a first-round pick for Iggy, we have a lot of first round picks coming up, including all of our own. We have Jay, who's an asset. Well, besides the one we owe to Boston. Correct, which is, yeah, yeah. essentially going this summer. So right. you're thinking moving forward, we'll have all of them. Right. Um, and if you look back, so w- name name a free agent, a big free agent we've gotten in the last, I don't know. Parsons, baby. Exactly. We've gotten one big free agent, and that's because no one else was signing because he didn't have knees. So I think it's very important. Yeah. It's very important to stock up as many assets as we can, whether that is draft picks or players that everyone will always want. Someone at every deadline for the next three or four years will always want a Jay Crowder. It will always happen. It's happening right now. It's going to happen in the years to come. So my thought is if we do keep him, I wouldn't be that upset. Not to say that we would always have him on our team. He would retire Grizz and all that kind of stuff. But we keep the asset, right? And if he leaves this summer, that's okay. Uh, we, so we have that money to play with to sign someone that's probably going to do just as good of a job on the court as he as he is now. Yeah, and and you all can go listen to this yourself, but Rosillo had Woj on to his podcast today, and Woj was basically making the point that I'll summarize um, since we're sort of towards the end of, of today's pod that – that the new sign and trade is or the sign and trade is kind of the new trade deadline where there may not even be as much activity to be anticipated because it's actually more valuable for these franchises to sign these folks and help control these players destinies a little bit more. Um, and, and if, if they don't, send them somewhere, then they're just comfortable keeping them because they know what they've got. Right. Especially with restricted guys. Um, so all restricted free agents, essentially like Dylan this summer is a great example of that. Um, he's restricted this summer so we can easily match anything that anyone offers. But if a certain team really wants him, we're obviously not going to let him walk and just be like, you know what? We're not going to match their offer. Cause we could always threaten like, not, nah, we're going to match it. So the only way you're getting him is if you do a sign and trade. Um, the thing with Jay is he's not restricted. He's unrestricted. So essentially if he hits free agency, we have no hold on him at all. Like, he's open to go essentially wherever he wants. Um, but I I don't know, man. Maybe it's just my Homer hat over here, but I could see him not hating the idea about staying in Memphis for another contract. Yeah, it uh, a good comp might be, but I'm saying this in a way that's uh, a comp uh, a, a detractor would say is something like a Tyreek Evans where we didn't trade him and then he just walked and so we got nothing for him. So that can't happen. Well, right, but, but I'm saying it's sort of the reverse because right. 
Jay Crowder is it, we, the team was just in a completely different place then. We yeah. had we were at the end of a road rather right. than the beginning, and that culture wasn't as important because the guys who were the culture makers were about to be dealt, in, you know, right. in less than two years. So, and I we mean, put Tyreek on the block, right? Like we benched well, him the last two games. He didn't he didn't dress right exactly. But like, then that was everyone the biggest, knew, and then we brought him back. It so was, everyone knew in the summer, like, yeah, we're not resigning him. We tried to trade him, and it didn't work out. Right. That's not the same thing with Jay. Like we're playing Jay, we're probably maybe even declining offers on him right now to keep him for the rest of the season. Yeah. So I think going into the summer, he would definitely take way more pressing and keeping than than like Tyreek would. Do we have any deals that we love other for Iggy other than the Mo Harkless L.A. Clippers? I think that's probably number one. Yeah. To me, at least, because I and think then, Harkless could be a guy for. Of why like we could re-sign him too. He's expiring as well. Yeah. Um. But I mean, we he's a he's a good player. Like he's a yeah. A, especially if he's like your sixth, seventh, eighth man off the bench. Like that's yeah quality. And then the the Dallas trade is the other one with Courtney it would Lee. Just be a really good favorite. second round pick. My yeah. Favorite. Yeah. Love Courtney. Yeah. Lee. Courtney but, Lee um, would come and go, and we would get Golden State second, which will probably be the thirty first overall pick. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, who knows? We have we've gotten Deontay Davis with a thirty first overall pick or something like Shout that before. Out. But we also got Dylan in the forty fifth. Um. So maybe this front office, and we also traded up to get Brandon Clark. So maybe a little bit of fun in the late first, early second round. Who knows? Well, um, that's gonna do it for today's pod. Unless there are any final final thoughts for Hammernail Coffin, but th- we're just all uh. We're just going to be waiting to see the Woj bomb or the uh, yeah. Shams bomb I'm drop. i to see. Um, Iggy's going. He's going somewhere. But yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting if there are zero moves. What is your – okay, if you were to say over or under one and a half moves, what are you taking? I would take the over. I think okay. some teams – are going to – it's easy right now. I think the 24 hours of the deadline day – going to be nuts. Is a time period where teams start to second-guess everything they thought they knew. Yeah. And are, if Not somebody us, becomes – Not us. They, somebody's going to talk themselves into Jay Crowder, and I think they could overpay. Um, But we'll see. I don't, I don't know the trade. I'm not claiming to right, have right. any teams on the radar. You would just say more than one. There's always something unexpected. Right. Um, that you can't forecast, so we'll see. I'm taking the under. Taking the, Take under. the under because okay. the because the front office is going to value culture. Last question. I hope so. Do, if do. Iggy does not, if we don't find a deal for Iggy that we love, are you team buy him out or are you team no. keep him on the roster to be as don't petty buy, as don't possible? Buy him out. Be petty. But it's, it's not petty. Bring him back. Let's let's really <laughs> solidify this eight seed. I mean, why not? I don't think he would play. No, I'm kidding. He should go play golf with me. Invite me to Southwind, my man. That's a great way to end this pod. Thanks for joining us. That's a, that's on, a hammer nail coffin if I've ever heard. That's Come a on, hammer nail coffin. Thanks for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Um, we'll see you guys next week. 